Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. Investing is different from trading. Yes, we see the index outcomes every night on television or every morning uh, in the morning news. If you're an investor, that's almost background noise. Don't be distracted by it. So understand what you're investing in, why you're doing it, how you want to do it, and the structures you wish to use to make that happen for you. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. What's the best way to explain difficult investing concepts? Why is the jargon so opaque? And how can we best learn to understand? Joining me today to try and untangle some tortured analogies, strained comparison, laboured similes. <laughs> I like the look on your face, Ian, as I go through this list. <laughs> Contrived parallels and awkward allegories is Ian Irvine from the Listed Investment Companies and Trusts Association. G'day, Ian. Phil, great to be with you again. Yes, I've got a wry smile on my face. See how we go. Happy to help where I can. Well, that's right. I mean, we're just trying to work out because analogies work up until a point, don't they? Yes. Uh, if you keep it simple, if it's straightforward, mm-hmm. easy to understand, that's that's just great. But if you start to drift off down a, a rabbit hole. A rabbit hole, hole you can. Yeah, 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 that's right, which we've found in our discussions. This chat came about because of the glossary that I'm compiling at sharesforbeginners.com forward slash glossary. I rang Ian to ask him about what he thought about my balloon analogy, which is a way of describing an open-ended fund like an ETF. And we ended up on a logo block analogy, which seems to work as well. So let's have a look at an ETF. What is an ETF? And Let's talk about the balloon yeah, idea to start yeah, with. Well, the, the balloon concept works well for exchange-traded funds or ETFs or any open-ended managed fund. Uh, they tend to be driven by inflows of capital or investment funds from investors as they choose to invest in those funds. Therefore, the balloon would expand. If there's more investors seeking to take money out, 
than wishing to put money in, the balloon will contract. So the balloon moves up and down. Probably could get to a point where it gets very large and just have to be careful about it going pop. <laughs> Um, because it will go pop along with the rest of the market I'm if not, the mar- there is a market if, uh, yeah. if, if, again, the analogy is, and I don't want to cast aspersions, it works very much on the lines of if there's more redemption requests, I would like my money back, please sell my units and give me cash, then there are new investors saying or existing investors saying, I want more new units and applying for more, here's my money. So if there's more coming out than going in, yes, the balloon will contract. Mm. In the case of an LIC, the industry that you represent, what's the difference? Why is it not like a balloon? Yes, yeah, so listed investment companies and listed investment trusts, LICs and LITs as they're, they're known. Um, that's where we started to talk about the alternative to the balloon, mm. the Lego example, because mm. you build your little Lego stack and that remains constant. So rather than increasing or growing as investors decide I want more or I want to move out, they actually sell on market through an exchange, such as the ASX, to another investor who wants to take over your ownership piece of your block. Now, you, can, you don't have to sell the whole Lego piece. You can sell a block to another investor and keep some, or you can sell it all, or you can buy some more yourself. Mm. So the blocks that the company owns remain constant. It's just your proportion of that company capital Lego piece remains constant. As you move your block around, it goes to somebody else, but it still remains within the company. So in the case of an ETF then, rather than a balloon, it's more like um, there's many, many more ETF blocks or many, many more Lego blocks that are being constructed in the castle. The Lego castle gets bigger and smaller. Yeah, if you want to continue the the Lego discussion, you've got um, fund managers, for want of a better description, workers on that Lego castle pulling blocks out as more people want to take their money back, taking those back to the factory, um, getting cash and giving it to them. As people want more, those managers are running up and down that Lego stack going back to the factory, which is the, the funds management, uh, the fund manager, and actually getting more blocks and sticking them on the, on the castle. Mm. But in an LIC, the castle is a fixed size. Correct. Yeah, unless there's, of course, capital. And that's so when you decide you want to put another rampart on your castle, you go back to the market to, or to your existing investors or to new investors, and you say, can I have some more capital, please? Here's what I want to do with it. Here's the reason why you could, should consider in buying more of our capital to help us build this castle. And this is what we're going to do with that capital in the future. Mm. I really enjoyed when we started talking about the Lego block analogy, talking about the ASX 200 and um, looking at what the ASX 200 Lego castle looks like. Give yeah. us a, a bit of a view on that. Yes, if we said, for instance, there was 200 blocks in the ASX 200, they'd all be different sizes. The biggest block, uh, as it stands today, would probably be BHP, around about 9 to 10% of the market. So, Or a collection of blocks would make up BHP to, to account for that 9 yeah. or 10%. About yeah, 10 Lego blocks. If there was 100 blocks in the ASX yeah. 200, they would be about yeah. 10, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. Next would come the banks, mm. Commonwealth Bank, and then toss-up between Westpac, NAB and ANZ, Telstra, West Farmers, and a few others. But when you get through that top 10, uh, however many blocks they account for combined, they represent about, I think, 60% of the value of the 200 index. So there's a concentration in the Australian 200 index, and it's pretty much mining resources and banks. Mm-hmm. And it's, I found it uh, when I started looking into this analogy and I'm looking for the relative sizes that Coles and Woolies combined is only around three blocks. Yeah, it's surprising. Though they're big and important companies. They are, yeah. In the, back in the day when Coles were part of West Farmers, it might have been a little bit more. But yeah, that's it. There's a big step down. I think you can put Telstra in there as well, mm. uh, up towards the top 10. 
But once you step out of sight of those 10, let alone the 20, there's a very long tail to make 200 or even the 300 index, which goes a lot further, obviously a further 100 stocks. Yeah. Why do you think it's important for new investors to understand the difference between a closed-ended and an open-ended fund? This is where the Lego castle gets bigger and smaller or it's a fixed size? Yeah, I think I'll talk to my area of of better understanding around the closed-end structure of a listed investment company or a listed investment trust. That means you've got a closed pool of capital. You're not a forced buyer into hot markets. So if markets are running hot, you as an active manager may take a view, if you're managing the LIC or the LIT, that's overvalued. We'd be paying too much to actually be forced to buy whatever's running hot. Buy now, pay later is probably a good example of some time ago. Whereas if you're in the open-ended structure, they've actually got to follow that index. So as those buy now, pay later, for example, products grow, they need to buy more and more and more. On the other side, and the winds do turn, as we all know, as those things fall away, they could be forced sellers. Again, if there's more people wanting to sell than there is to buy, they might be selling all of the individual stocks in that 200 index in proportion. Mm. Whereas the closed-end LIC says, no, I'll stay with my chosen strategy, that market's too hot. When it's turned, there's good value. I'll buy in. I'll use my captive pool of capital to maybe sell some of the stuff on the way up that was overheated and then buy again on the way down when it's with good value. So make a capital gain as well as I'm buying into investments that are going to deliver income as well so I can get the best of both worlds. And the, the other side about it, I mean, I don't, and I don't want to besmirch the reputations of ETFs here at the moment, but if you're looking at an index fund, which is the most common form of ETF, you're going to end up, like you say, concentrated in the top end of the market, there with all the miners and all of the banks. Mm-hmm. And another kind of manager may say, well, we don't want to have all the miners and we don't have to have all of the banks, we want to make an informed decision on which of those we feel is going to give us the best return. If you can speak to that for a moment. Yeah, that's correct. And I would never talk down exchange-traded funds. I think they have a role to play. And I'm certainly the view, and we as an association are the view, that these things fit together. And the best thing is to educate investors about why would I go closed in with an LIC or LIT as opposed to open-ended for ETFs. To give the ETFs a little bit of a plug, I think they track a commodity price such as gold or a currency such as the US dollar very well. Hmm. But as you point out, I wouldn't necessarily use them for my equity, Aussie equity investing or my global equity investing because you are forced buyers or the fund managers are forced buyers into markets, as I've stated, where things could rapidly be changing in what appears to be growth, which is good, but overheated growth, which is not good. On the other side, as we keep mentioning, on the way down. Closed-end fund with its closed-end pool of capital makes it able to make considered decisions strategically for the long term. So they match long-term investment thinking with long-term investment outcomes. And for investors that are looking for steady growth, not necessarily that rapid rush rush up, and income to flow from that fund, the closed-end fund, listed investment company or trust, um, I think they're the ideal mechanism to do that. And you'll see there are a number of listed investment companies as opposed to the trust they're able to retain their profits and actually stream that payment back to their investors or owners over future periods. So it's not this up and down, back and forward, lumpy distribution. Mm. It's a considerably consistent payment of a dividend, and it can be franked. And there's a number of LICs that have done this consistently over a long time. 
bring it back into percentage terms. If you've got 100 blocks, yep. let's say BHP is somewhere between 9 and 10. Let's say 10 for ease. Mm-hmm. They've got five of those blocks. Yeah. Oh, or we say 200 blocks in the, 200, make it easy. In the ASX 200 castle. Yep. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you confused about how to invest? LifeSherpa can ease the burden of having to decide for yourself. Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. I just quickly wanted to run through franking credits. What do franking credits mean to investors? And if you could explain basically what a franking credit is. That's a a much vexed question, Phil. Thanks for asking it. (laughs) Uh, It takes a little bit of explanation, but a franking credit probably could better be described as a tax credit. And it gives credit for the amount of money that the company, so these particularly relate to companies, not just listed investment companies, but companies such as BHP, Woolworths, Westpac, and others that we've mentioned, when they operate in Australia, make a profit in Australia, pay tax in Australia, they pay that to the government. And those companies I just mentioned pay company tax at the rate of 30%. So if you invested in one of those companies, they've paid 30% of your tax obligation. In the full fulfilment of time, at the end of the financial year, you work out, as you would with your own personal income, did I pay too much tax and I've got deductions that actually get me to have a, where I see a refund? So the 30% is actually offset against your tax liability. So if you're a high income earner and you're paying the top marginal rate, which I think is around 45%, and you receive this dividend where the tax has been paid at the rate of 30%, you pay the extra 15 If you're on the other side of that 30% company tax rate, where your personal tax is below that, or in fact zero, as some super funds are, not just self-managed super funds, but super funds generally, you actually may be entitled to receive the full taxes paid by the company on your behalf as a refund because your true rate is zero. Mm. And it's a tax deduction, isn't it? Yeah, in well, that case. Well, it's an offset against you. Yeah. The company's done this for you. Mm. The government's got actually received that tax. It's probably had it for the better part of 12 months until you complete your own tax returns, again, for your super fund or for yourself. Mm. Yes, so it's, it's balancing out uh, over time. And this is quite unusual on the world stage, isn't it? It is. Australia has this almost unique characteristic mm. of franking credits. It was introduced by the government going back many years, mm. recognising that they don't want to pay double tax. Yeah, it's a double taxation, isn't it? Tax at the company mm. rate, tax at your personal rate. So if you're on that top marginal rate paying 45 cents mm. before Medicare and tax had already been paid at 30%, add those two numbers together, you just paid 75%. So that would dissuade people, in particular some of those people with income that they can afford to invest, and when you invest in the stock market, you're supporting companies that are listed. Mm. And a lot of people look at the trading side of the stock market, and that's called referred to as the secondary market, was really companies come to the exchange for the primary market to raise capital. So the ability of them to raise capital supports the Australian economy across all of those types of companies we've talked about, be they banks or miners or retailers. Okay, so 
let's get to some tortured analogies. And I put these into chat GPT. Ah. <laughs> I just asked for a bunch of uh, inve- tortured investing analogies. Investing in the stock market is like taming a wild beast. You have to study its behavior, anticipate its moves, and carefully approach it. Just like a seasoned animal trainer, an investor needs patience, skill, and a keen understanding of the market to ensure they ride the waves and avoid getting trampled. I don't know how they got waves in there. That's mixing the metaphors, isn't there's it? There's tigers, there's waves, there's a whole bunch of things in there, Phil. Um, <laughs> that's cheat. That's chat to GPT, uh, hallucinating. It's, it's just currently. pulling things out of all over the place. So mm. let me see if I can simplify that. Education, understanding what you're doing. Uh, investing is different from trading. Mm. Yes, we see the index outcomes every night on television or every morning uh, in the morning news. If you're an investor, that's almost background noise. Don't be distracted by it. So understand what you're investing in. As I said about the characteristics of an LIC is or an LIT is, because of their closed-end structure, they're investing for the long term and they're backing that up with long-term investment thinking, not focusing on the day-to-day noise. So distilling that down, understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you want to do it and the structures you wish to use to make that happen for you and, and consider investing for the longer term rather than for the very short term. I think the only thing that, that I'd take away from that particular tortured analogy is that it can be dangerous and you can lose money. And unless you take those steps that you suggest, the chances that you will lose money rapidly increase. I'd never suggest there's no risk. There mm. is risk. Because but risk is where reward comes from, isn't it? They're exactly. totally related. Exactly. Mm. And the, the old adage often proves to be true. The, the, the higher the reward, the greater the risk. Understand mm. that. And that's where investing for the long term, over the, the long term, you may see your style of investing change from being higher risk typically, but not always, for younger people that have time. Mm. Time to recover should the market change against them. As you get closer to retirement and looking for a steady income, the nature of some of the products you may use would change as well. But you're also dialing down the risk because you want some certainty around the income and you can't take the shock of a significant market correction. Mm. Ah, my favourite, pizza analogies. (laughs) Understanding diversification is like building a delicious pizza. Each investment is like a different topping. Some provide flavour, others add texture, and a few deliver the perfect balance. Just like a pizza with too much cheese can be overwhelming, an investment portfolio lacking diversification can leave you vulnerable to market volatility. I think we were just talking about that, really, weren't we? We touched on market volatility. So the first place I'd start with this tortured analogy is uh, we think of a pizza, we think of it sliced up, and each of those slices is roughly equal. Asset allocation, which leads to diversification, is not equal slices. So back to what we talked about a moment ago, if you're younger or more willing to take on risk for greater return, slices in that area of higher risk will be greater. Mm. Whereas on the other side of it, you may have smaller slices that are dedicated to things like fixed income or even cash or turn deposits in the bank, which have got a much more secure nature about them. So determining which slices are which size is referred to as asset allocation, and that then gives you a diversified pizza probably going to torture this a little, but the next piece is portfolio construction. So how much of those slices do you want made with pepperoni or with cheese or those sorts of things? So that's coming back to what's the product I want to use to get that slice. Mm. So if the largest slice I wanted was a mining stock, do I do that through buying the stock directly? Do I buy an LIC that transacts and trades heavily into mining stocks or do I use an exchange traded fund for example that has a focus on mining stocks that's the topping that goes on that piece of slice and that's the same all the way around uh, adding up to 100% and if 
we're talking about, say, mining stocks as being pepperoni, if you've got an ASX 200 ETF, a large proportion of your pizza is going to be have that pepperoni. Like it or not, and that's the answer. Then to go out and buy pepperoni separately or to buy BHP or Fortescue or Rio means that your diversification overall is reduced. Yes, you're doubling mm. up or more. Mm. And that's often referred to as look-through. So in your portfolio, you should be actually looking at that slice and how many products you have, irrespective of structure, in that slice. Then you count your BHP once, twice, thrice, or whatever it is. Same with the others. Or your banks. Mm. Uh, and a lot of, lot of investors will probably have a number of products that have exposure to banks. And it's always useful to actually look through and find out what the holding is. And listed investment companies and trusts declare their top 10 typically. They don't go into a lot of detail because they're active managers, they're choosing to invest for the long term, that's their intellectual property. Whereas an index fund over the 200, it's blatantly obvious. So there's no IP to protect. Mm. The other pizza analogy as well as just talking about one particular company and the shares in that company are like pizza slices as well. Yes, but it, again, it's back to that. This is not going to sound very appetising. It's a bit more like the Lego block thing because mm. within that company slice is only that big always because they are, like listed investment companies, closed-end funds. The comp- a, just an individual company itself a, a, on, listed on the exchange? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they have a limited number of shares on issue mm-hmm. at any point in time and they do raise capital or give it back in much the same way as an LIC would. Okay, let's move on to another one. Understanding compound interest is like watching a snowball grow. Initially, it starts small, but as it rolls downhill, it accumulates more snow, gaining momentum and size. So when you invest your money and earn interest or dividends or capital growth, I'm assuming in this, on your initial investment, the power of compounding helps you grow your wealth over time, turning a small snowball into a massive boulder. Wow. (laughs) I think the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> it is really, isn't it? It's self-explanatory. Yeah, well, it, it is, but it, it comes back to this long-term investment thinking. So mm-hmm. if you start early with smaller amounts, they may grow over time. But if you start with smaller amounts and you receive income that you don't need, be that through share dividends or trust distributions, and you reinvest it, that snowball starts to grow. And as the snowball grows, possibly more income is generated, reinvested more income reinvested and rolls on. It's often been described as the eighth wonder of the world, I think inappropriately attributed to Albert Einstein, but that's another discussion. But once you gather how it works, it's it's really mind-boggling. And I think we've discussed this before. I did a little Excel exercise that just said, if I started investing when I finished university, when I was 20, let's say, and invested for 20 years till I was 40, and someone said, no, I'm going to live the life, I'm going to start 20 years later, and invest from 20 to retirement age at 60, and you'd stopped at 40, and you're investing the same amounts of money, who's going to have the most at retirement? If you do the calculation, yep. with a 2 or 3% return. You've tried to test me on this before. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did. It's, a, it's an interesting outcome, but mm. I encourage anyone listening to do a little bit of it for themselves. And it can be hard reinvesting dividends in terms of sometimes you get to a stage where you're paying tax on this as well, and to hold on to them means that you've actually got to be increasing your I'm just I know this example of a friend of mine who's now looking at retiring at 58 years old and that's because he kept on reinvesting his dividends but 
it was a strain at the time, especially when he was raising a young family, mm-hmm. to pay that extra tax on the reinvested dividends. Well, then you're not paying tax on the reinvested dividends. You're paying tax, oh, tax on, on the, the dividends. On, on the dividends. Yeah, so, yeah. Whereas he could have just taken the dividend and paid the tax and yeah, kept some. You still have. To, you've still got to pay tax. What are the, yes. what are the, the, the yes, death yes, and yes, taxes, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So if you receive a dividend in a financial year, uh, you pay tax. Now you may get a refund through the Franken Crescent and all those things we discussed earlier, but you still have to pay that tax, irrespective mm. of whether you take it as cash now mm-hmm. or reinvest it. You still have to pay tax now. So, what goes into your reinvestment is just the dividend itself on a completely separate exercise. That income's been received. It's like, put it this way, it's like the dividend was actually paid to you into your bank. Oh, I can see that there. I need to pay tax on that, but I've taken it out and I put it back into the company. Mm. What the Dividend reinvestment plans enable you to do is not take the money into your bank and back into the company. So it'll be reinvested without brokerage or further cost, but you still need to pay your tax. Okay, just leaving the analogies aside for a moment, the other kind of tax that's involved in share market investment is capital gains tax. Tell us about that. Well, first up, not a tax expert, so I'm not giving any tax advice whatsoever. Although it's funny, accountants can't even give you tax advice anymore. Have you noticed? Well, they, they, my accountant said to me, "I'm not allowed to give you tax advice," and I'm going, "What?" It can't. Yeah, um, some accountants. Yeah, I think. Some I, think account, they, yeah. I think everyone needs to have an appropriate license to give yeah. either investment advice or tax advice. Mm. And these days, you don't often find the same together. Yes, so yes. You have an investment specialist who can give you an investment advice. Accountants can give you tax advice, maybe not to tell you what you should do, but tell you the consequences of what would happen if you did do it. I think they kind of have to approach it tangentially rather than telling you directly, you do this because you'll save this amount of money. Yes, and yep. they can't give you investment advice no. unless they're qualified as a financial, financial advisor. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So where were we? Capital gains tax. Often it describes that tax is not a bad one to have because you've actually grown your wealth. So you've over time, you've been reinvesting dividends and your portfolio has grown but you decided to take some money out. So the difference between what you actually bought for and what you're actually going to receive, the gain, uh, is what you pay capital gains tax on. Now, there's a whole range of formulas which have changed over the years, but you may be entitled to some discounts the longer you've held the asset. So typically, again, disclaimer, I'm not a tax advisor. Mm -hmm. If you have held the asset for longer than 12 months, you may get a discount on sale. The other important thing to consider is this is very Australian as well, along with Frank and Chris, and they tend to be linked. Uh, self-managed super funds, as you move into pension phase, when you hit that magic age, whatever that is, which is a good thing, you may be drawing a pension from your super fund tax-free. That may give that structure some benefits in terms of how capital gains tax is treated. Emphasise, please get the appropriate advice mm. from a licensed professional. And there's a discount, isn't it? Like if you hold on over a year? 12 months. Yeah. 12 months, yeah, there's a 50% discount? Yes. Something like that. Yes, it is 50%, but yeah. it's, it's strange. It used to be linked to CPI, mm. which over the oh, last... Oh, that, that hasn't happened now? That no, doesn't... over the last decade, it would have been great because you yeah. would have had no capital gain. Yeah. No CPI increases on your capital gain. Mm-hmm. But for, I think it was the Wallace Report, I think we probably don't... The Wallace Report introduced this, let's make it simple. Mm. If you hold it for over 12 months, there's a 50% discount on the capital gain, yeah. which is, again, I think, at your marginal tax rate. Mm. And of course, this is something to do with the cost side of things. So the longer you can hang on to your investments for... 50%, doesn't matter. Oh, but no, more importantly is that you don't, if you don't sell, you don't pay tax. Oh, yes. Uh, so yep. it's, as I say, it's a good thing to have. See capital appreciation, it's mm. a bit like a house. So it's a feel-good thing. And most people in Australia at present would be saying that their property is worth more. Mm. 
um, not everyone, but most, and that that's a feel good thing, and that that helps consumer confidence. Even though you can't sell the kitchen and mm. keep the rest of the house, mm. it's a good feeling to say my house is appreciated and valued. Therefore, I'm more confident. And the the long term downside of that is, if anything were to go to custard, I could always sell the house, which no one ever really wants to do, and very few people do. And I regret. At sometimes there are those that are forced to do that, but that's unusual. Mm. I was reading an article last night, and it was about divorce lawyers are going through a bumper period because since post-COVID, there have been a lot of relationships falling apart. But the other side of it is that uh, property values have gone up so much that it's not a financial strain to break up anymore, <laughs> which is a bit sad, you know. Look, I think a major global investment bank has done some wealth studies around the world and Australia is one of the wealthiest countries per capita in the world. Mm, mm. So that's on an average basis. But on a median basis, we're top five mm. in terms of wealth. A lot of that's to do with property. Mm. Our property and our superannuation. Just getting back to franking credits just for a moment, you have to hold on to them for 45 days to qualify, don't you? We didn't mention that. 47 uh, days, I actually uh, feel as strange as it may seem. Mm-hmm. You need to hold an investment and receive the franking and dividend payments within a 45-day period, mm. plus the day you buy it, plus the day you sell it. So in other words, I could buy it 4 o'clock on one day, hold it for 45 days, then sell it 9 o'clock the next morning on 47 days. But I have to have it at risk. Mm. And in a, in a space of one and a half months, as we know, and I do talk long term, but in the space of 45 days, the markets can gyrate a bit. And what you'll typically find is leading up to that ex-dividend date, if the expectation in the market is that the result is going to be good, the share price will appreciate. So you've got to get in maybe even before that 40-day run-up, hold it over that announcement date, and then when it goes X, and you, you, that's the date where if you're holding the uh, the stock, it goes X dividend, you're entitled to the dividend, and the person you sell it to does not receive that dividend. A very important date. Mm. But you need to hold it through that X div date, for the 45, 47 days. Yeah, and that's the other term, isn't it? Come dividend. Come and X. X. So yep. come dividend means you get it. Mm-hmm. X, obviously, X. It's, it, you're buying X dividend. Now, if you're using a broker, full service broker, they should tell you that. If you're trading online, you will see it as this is X or come dividend. Mm. Hedging your investments is like constructing a safety net. It's like being a trapeze artist who relies on a safety harness to mitigate the risks of a fall. Tell us about hedging. How can you hedge? There's a lot of circus analogies coming through from GP chat. Well, we're all clowns uh, yeah. <laughs> after all. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Hedging is, yes, hedging your bets. That's obviously where it comes from. So try to think of a reasonable analogy. And the one I would not normally go to is bookmakers mm. or insurance companies. Probably a better one. Insurance companies, for example, if they've got a lot of exposure to a certain group of clients, geographically or industry we all know about floods and the bushfires, they will actually lay off some of their uh, exposure to that to other insurers who take a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, so they reduce their exposure and spread it out. Hedging typically in investing terms refers to currency, and it's particularly important if you are investing overseas from Australia, for example. So if you're investing in a fund that's in the US, and there, there are both listed investment companies and ETFs that do do this, you're exposed to the US currency. Now you can buy a hedged version or the manager of an actively managed LIC can take hedging to cover their exposure. So what they're saying is whichever side 
of the equation you want to be on. If the Aussie's rallying, it can work in your favour domestically, but it can be costing you overseas. Whichever side you want to be on, and I'll, I'll leave the experts to explain this, but you can mm. actually protect your downside or your upside of the currency in which you're investing running away or the currency in which you're investing from the Australian dollar falling away. Mm. Hedging helps manage that sort of those sort of outcomes. Yeah, but then some people want to have that currency exposure as well. I was speaking to an investor recently who bought Berkshire Hathaway during the global financial crisis when the Aussie dollar was way, way down. And then, of course, when the, the dollar appreciated, they made not, they made capital appreciation. Is that the correct rem- Other way around. Other way around. Okay, yeah. yeah. So this this is, where, is where I don't understand where currency gets, risk um, yeah, so very if, well. If you, yeah. When the Aussie was equal to the US... Happy days. Mm. So you bought US stocks in US dollars, cost you a dollar, cost mm. you a dollar Aussie. Um, but as the US market appreciated, you got the benefit because it was rising against the Aussie dollar. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was favorable. If it went the other way, it would be the other way around. It's, it's difficult to understand mm. and it's it, always important to get appropriate advice around those sorts of considerations. Well, I'm glad you're here to correct me and my uh, <laughs> misconceptions. <laughs> I, I, I'm not the person to do that. So <laughs> this is not my role, but yeah. We'll get back to the show right after this brief message. Why am I buying, holding or selling a share? If you can't answer that basic question, then you don't have a plan. The best investors are ruthless in executing their plans. I've been fortunate to meet many great investors on the podcast. Tony Coniston is one of the best. He has a clear and systematic approach to investing that is honest, sensible and methodical. It's called QAV, Quality at Value. QAV now offer an excellent light plan for only $29 per month. You can follow their buy and sell recommendations and learn the ropes. And the first month is free using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Go to qavpodcast.com.au to sign up. That's qavpodcast.com.au using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Past performance is not a guarantee of future returns. Please read the QAV FSG and consult a financial professional before investing. I receive a small commission for services I recommend and I only recommend services I use myself. So this is your soapbox, Ian. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover and tell listeners about while you were here? Oh, look, I think we're talking to a group of um, congratulations to you, Phil, and to your audience because these people are interested in learning more about their financial literacy, more learning more about managing their money, their uh, retirement, superannuation, and those sorts of things, and investments. I think the important things to understand is that this, the markets are a long-term consideration, but if we roll this right back, why would you buy a share or an LIC or, or an ETF to invest in the Australian market? Let's keep it straightforward. The realisation to many is uh, it's an aha moment. When you buy a share in a company listed on the ASX, for example, you've become an owner. And we often refer to that as equity ownership. So you have a slice of the company. Now, depending on how many shares you have, your ownership and your entitlements to vote and all those sorts of things rises or falls in proportion to your share ownership. It's not like uh, some investments where you're actually following an investment manager. You have an ownership where you've actually given capital to the company and you're expecting them to work for you, to give you the outcomes that you're expecting by way of income or growth and to do the sorts of things that they say. You have entitlements to attend the AGMs, question management, talk to the directors and the chairperson of, of the business. So I'd encourage anybody getting started investing to look at it from exactly that perspective. It's like I've bought something and I'm an owner, but I'm one of many. So together we have a voice. And I encourage people not necessarily to become activists, 
but to go along to AGMs, as I just mentioned, because there's a large proportion of people there who have a chance to ask questions. Why did this work? Why did this not work? What's the future hold? And you can ask the, the difficult questions, the ones we can't talk about here. What's your dividend policy? What's the future look like for payment of future dividends? And, all and remuneration and, policy, which and, is the big one as yeah, well in the AGMs, isn't it? Yeah, it how is. much they're paying their executives. Yeah, and I think there's a balance there. I mean, these mm. things do get... Um, Overwrought? <laughs> and, and taken out of proportion because mm. you want the best... You have to pay mm. for the best. You don't have to overpay for the best. And it, it's, it is a global market, um, but I think you need to pay an appropriate remuneration for the right outcomes. That's the good news, is if the, right out, if the outcomes aren't right, as a shareholder, you have a right to vote and you can vote down the REM report. And if, if that happens by a certain number of votes, two consecutive years, uh, there's a spill on the board. It's also... Interesting to have a look at an annual report or a half-yearly report because sometimes it's easy to assume where a company makes its money from, but actually when you read the report, you can see that sometimes there's unexpected areas where companies are making money that you wouldn't even think about unless you did a little bit of a dive into it. Yeah, and again, we're coming up to reporting season, so Mm. half-year, a lot of companies balance at the half-year, so the 30th of June. A lot of announcements will be made and shortly thereafter annual reports provided and then followed by AGMs. But the, if you get the annual report and go through it, that's a nice document to take to the AGM. Unfortunately, and I think it's unfortunate, I think it's, it's always good to have a lot of information, but you can have too much. Um, some of the annual reports are 64, 96-page documents. They've got nice photos of the board of directors and the chair people and all that sort of stuff. Beautiful PowerPoint presentations as well. <laughs> well, and they do, they do all that. So there's mm. a lot, and I'm, I'm all for communication. But I, back to that point, I think the, the PowerPoints and the summaries that, that precede the, the annual reports are often useful as well. Mm. And if there's something there that you've got a question about, or on the other side, there's something there that you is not there, so I'll put it that way, um, delve into the annual report to find out a little bit, little bit more about it. So the first part of annual reports tend to be not the right words, but they tend to be a bit more puffy, mm-hmm. whereas they've got the financials attached to it, and they're the, the, the anecdotes at the back. If you've got a, an accounting mind, if you understand a balance sheet or a very basic profit and loss, very handy information to have a look at. I thought it was interesting, Credit Corp. They released their report yesterday, and they said that the state of the Australian economy and the state of debt amongst consumers was not at worrying levels at all. In fact, their business has been affected to the point where consumer debt, which is what they deal in, is not available for them to make good money out of. Right. Um, <laughs> which is an interesting uh, overview of the economy, isn't it? Yeah, I think, again, back to the point we're saying, so this is this is about doing your research, looking, learning, listening. That sort of comment is something you, you put in, in some space in your mind and you look for reconfirming other companies saying something similar. Mm. The media probably would be looking for the alternative headline, uh, and the bad news headline, yeah. If it bleeds, it leads, sort of thing. But so yes. So what's going to get people to pick up my newspaper? I'm thinking old fashioned here, or click through. It's going to be that headline that doesn't sound good. But if you're listening to what one company says about the state of consumer debt, that's interesting. Another company says something else that's similar, that's more interesting. And if you get two or three views that are expressing the same sorts of outcomes. That's a useful way to build up your knowledge and, and form your own view. Mm. And especially to protect yourself against the, the bad news headlines of, that we yeah. constantly bombarded with. And a knee-jerk response to, I've got to do this because I saw it in the headline there, I've got to buy or sell, whichever way it is. Mm. 
Lithium. Everyone's talking lithium. So, I mean, if I, 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 uh, there's many ways to get lithium, but do oh, I have to God, go and buy Don't go to the pub. You know, oh, Phil, you know about shares. What do you think about this yeah. stock? And I said, well, they do. <laughs> I've got the perfect response now. Have you heard of vanadium? Apparently vanadium's the thing now. Forget li- lithium. Well, there's two, sides, there's two sides of lithium, isn't there? So, anyway. Anyway, yeah. Uh, look, the other thing to look out for with company announcements is uh, something coming out at 4 o'clock on a Friday before a long weekend. Oh, yeah, they're the ones to watch out for, aren't they? Yeah. And you may miss it because that's exactly what it's designed to do. Also, we just what we talked through, there's a company that announced yesterday, it also happened to be a Reserve Bank interest rate announcement, which tend to be fairly benign. But I'm not drawing the same comparison to the Friday before the long weekend outcome. Companies tend to set their announcement dates for the results, the AGMs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on a regular basis. Also, the payment of dividends. So if you're an avid investor and you keep a record of his divs come in you find it's almost the same day twice each year twice mm. a year mm. around about the same point in time except if it moves from being a weekday to a weekend then it jumps to the next weekend or comes back or something like that so uh, you have plenty of forward notice is probably the point i'm trying to make of when a company's going to make an announcement and when you're going to be able to find out more information mm. so it looks like that the stock market is a juggling Pizza making, trapeze artist, line taming beast that <laughs> that um, builds its business in Lego blocks and then puffs up balloons. <laughs> wow, you've mixed them all in there together. That's an interesting recipe you've put down. Um, look, I'm going to simplify it and just come back to it. It, it is all of those things mm. if you look at it from one perspective. If you come from another view, backed by research, education, knowing what you want to do with a clear strategy for yourself and if need be, seek appropriate advice, it can be a great place. Everyone likes going to the circus. Um, and if, if you know what you're looking at and if you know what the outcome is, you'll have a great time. Ian Irvine, thank you very much. Cheers. Pleased to be here. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. 